Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 26th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an accommodation for an injured worker under FIHA does not require an employer to shift job duties to other employees. Here's what happened in the case of Duarte versus the Vons Companies. Verglio Duarte worked for the Vons Companies as a baker since 1990. He suffered a work-related injury in 2009 that restricted his ability to use his left arm. Vons temporarily rescheduled Duarte to a shift where he had access to a baker's helper who did the lifting, pushing, and pulling that the baker usually does. Vons generally offers up to 12 weeks of what it calls modified duty to employees who have a workers' compensation injury. If the employee continues to have work restrictions after 12 weeks, he or she is taken off this modified duty and put on temporary disability, in this case, involuntarily. Vons investigated other positions for Mr. Duarte that turned out to be unavailable. After a lengthy leave of absence, Vons terminated Doherty. Doherty contended in his civil suit against Vons that he was not accommodated properly and that Vons failed to engage in a good-faith interactive process. A trial court granted a summary judgment in favor of Vons, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case. To prevail on claims for disability discrimination and failure to provide a reasonable accommodation, the worker must show that he or she was able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. FIHA does not require an employer to shift a disabled employee's essential duties to other employees. Thus, the statute does not require other employees to work harder or longer. Slowing production or assigning an injured worker lighter loads is not required by the law. The employee should be able to identify specific, available, reasonable accommodations by the time the parties have conducted discovery and reached the summary stage of litigation. If the employee cannot identify such a reasonable accommodation after discovering litigation, he or she has suffered no remediable injury from any violation. The only accommodation Storty proposed was to have a helper do all the lifting, pulling, pushing, and reaching, and pouring of heavy material, and allowing Doherty to use a scooper instead of pouring. The proposed accommodation was not reasonable as a matter of law. Doherty's failure to identify a reasonable accommodation that was available at the time the interactive process occurred dooms his claim for failure to engage in that process. The judge overseeing a class action lawsuit against FedEx Ground over its classification of certain drivers as independent contractors has approved the $228 million settlement with 2,300 California-based FedEx drivers. The settlement will resolve the legal battle that's now stretched a decade. 
the truck operators claimed their designation as contractors rather than employees kept them from state-required employee benefits like overtime pay, rest breaks, and workers' compensation. The settlement covers just the 2,300 drivers that worked at the company in California between 2000 and 2007. A FedEx spokesperson said, Other similar cases in other states will proceed separately. The settlement followed an August 2014 ruling against FedEx in the case. The Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issued rulings that said the drivers bringing the suit should have been classified as employees. This July, the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals made a similar ruling against FedEx involving drivers in Kansas. The Federal Appeals upheld the Kansas Supreme Court's 2014 ruling that said 500 drivers based in that state were improperly classified as contractors instead of employees. Both the Seventh Circuit and Ninth Circuit appeals courts would be the last stops before the U.S. Supreme Court. And now our crime report. A federal jury in Los Angeles convicted the former owner and former operator of a DME company of healthcare fraud charges in connection with a $1.5 million Medicare fraud scheme. 41-year-old Amalia Chernovsky and her 46-year-old husband Vladislav Turchayevsky of Long Beach were both convicted of one count of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, and five counts of health care fraud. Sentencing is scheduled for December 14. The evidence demonstrated that Amalia Chernovsky owned JC Medical Supply, a purported durable medical equipment supply company, and that she cooperated the company with her husband. The two paid illegal kickbacks to patient recruiters in exchange for patient referrals. They also paid kickbacks to physicians for fraudulent prescriptions, primarily for expensive, medically unnecessary power wheelchairs. More than $1.5 million in claims were submitted to Medicare. This case was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, supervised by the Criminal Division's Fraud Section and the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Central District of California. The Medicare Fraud Strike Force is now operating in nine cities across the country and, over the last few years, has charged more than 2,300 defendants who have collectively billed for more than $7 billion in fraudulent charges. And in regulatory news, last August, the DWC amended the Workers' Compensation Benefit Notice Regulations that govern the notices that employers and claims administrators use to inform employees of their rights and obligations. The new regulations address statutory changes enacted in 2012 and require additions to notices including MPN information that replaces the requirement for a separate MPN poster. There is new language on electronic service of notices, advice that medical services are subject to approval, a revised permanent disability description, and new language on timely reporting. 
The state made the new regulations effective next January 1 to allow time to obtain and distribute the revised notices. Administrators may continue to use current versions until the end of 2015, after which they should begin using the updated materials. Private entities may publish the required workers' comp posting notices and new hire pamphlets if they are approved by the state, and many insurers and employers rely on the California Workers' Compensation Institute to produce these materials and keep them up to date. The CWCI has now updated its new hire pamphlet and posting notice, obtained state approvals, translated them into Spanish, and printed them along with the new DWC-1 NOPE letter, which as of January will consist of a three-page NOPE attached to four copies of the claim form, printed on NCR paper to eliminate the need to photocopy. In addition, the CWCI added information to its pamphlet and posting notice on the state's $120 million return to work supplement program to reflect regulations adopted in April. And it updated its Facts for Injured Workers pamphlet, which many claims administrators use to provide information to injured workers early in the life of a claim. The CWCI now has the revised materials in stock and ready to ship. Claims operations or employers that wish to obtain these revised notices can visit the CWCI website store. Ten ranking Democrats on key Senate and House committees are urging the Labor Department to respond to what they say is a pattern of detrimental changes in state workers' compensation laws that they claim have reduced protections and benefits for injured workers over the last decade. In a later letter to Labor Secretary Thomas Perez, the lawmakers cited an investigation by NPR and ProPublica which found that 33 states have cut workers' compensation benefits and made it more difficult to qualify or given employers more control over medical care decisions. The letter also referred to NPR ProPublica stories last week that detailed an emerging trend that permits employers to opt out of state-regulated workers' comp programs write their own injury plans, and limit benefits on their own. The lawmakers say that state workers' compensation laws are no longer providing adequate levels of support and compensation for workers injured on the job. And they conclude that the race to the bottom now appears to be nearly bottomless. The letter is signed by Bernie Sanders, the Democratic presidential hopeful, and ranking minority members of the Senate Budget Committee, Patty Murphy, Murray, the ranking member of the Senate Labor Committee, Bobby Scott, the ranking member of the House Workforce Committee, and seven other senior Democrats on House and Senate Budget, Finance, Employment, Workforce, Ways and Means, and Social Security Committees. The agency said it would review the letter and work with the stakeholders to find real solutions, but did not commit to any specific action. 
The Labor Department tracked changes in state workers' compensation laws and failures to meet 19 minimum and essential standards for benefits established by a 1972 commission convened by President Richard Nixon until budget cuts in 2004. Representative Bobby Scott says the benefits cutback make federal action necessary even though workers' comp is legislated and managed by states. A 2007 study by a health economist at the University of California, Davis, estimated that workplace injuries not covered by workers' comp cost government programs about $30 billion a year. Federal intervention may also come as a result of the opt-out movement in Texas and Oklahoma, in which employers shun workers' comp and are permitted to write and administer their own workplace injury plans. South Carolina and Tennessee are considering opt-out laws now, and proponents are aiming for a dozen states by the end of the decade. The DWC will be updating some of the clinical topics of the medical treatment utilization schedule. It begins this process by posting two new additional guidelines. The proposed occupational interstitial lung disease guideline and the occupational work-related asthma guideline to its online forum. Members of the public may review and comment on these proposals. The DIR director, Christine Baker, said that the MTUS updates help to ensure that medical treatment in the workers' compensation system is based on the newest and best medical evidence. Once the online forums have been completed for each specific clinical topic, the DWC will combine all of the proposed regulatory updates and additions into one rulemaking package. The DWC Executive Medical Director, Dr. Rupali Das, said her unit is actively updating all medical treatment guidelines to incorporate the current scientific and medical knowledge for many other work-related conditions. The proposed guidelines incorporate by reference the June 6, 2015 version of ACOM's Occupational Interstitial Lung Disease Guideline and Occupational Work-Related Asthma Guideline, which the DWC has adopted with permission from the publisher. Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones said that the Department of Insurance actuaries found that Aetna Life Insurance Company's most recent small group health insurance rate increase was excessive and unreasonable. Aetna is increasing rates for small businesses and their employees by an annual average of 27.4%. Jones said this increase will impact small businesses that renew their policies in the fourth quarter of 2015, affecting over 40,000 employees. He claims that small businesses simply cannot afford unwarranted and unreasonable increases in health insurance costs, nor can their employees. His actuaries reviewed Aetna's rate filing and found that the average 27.4% increase was not based on Aetna's most recent claims experience, but instead he claims it was based 
on an unreasonable and excessive pricing trend and other unreasonable assumptions. Commissioner Jones advised Aetna of the department's finding that the rate increase was unjustified. But Aetna decided to impose the rate increases despite the finding that the rate increase was excessive and unreasonable, costing small businesses a projected $5.5 million. Unlike 35 other states, California does not have the legal authority to reject excessive health insurance rate increases. A recent national study found that those states with the authority to regulate health insurance rates had lower rate increases as compared to states like California, which do not have that authority. The DWC Chief Judge Richard Newman and Executive Medical Director Rupali Das are leaving the division for new endeavors. Judge Newman will join the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board, and Dr. Doss will retire from state service. Chief Judge Newman will leave the DWC at the end of November to assume the position of Secretary and Deputy Commissioner of the WCAB as of December 2nd. The current Secretary, Rick Diedrich, retires effective December 30. Judge Newman has a long career in workers' compensation. Prior to beginning beginning his tenure as the chief judge in September 2011, he worked for the division as an attorney, judge, and presiding judge. As chief judge, Newman had the responsibility of overseeing the division's 24 district offices, including the hiring and supervision of judges and judicial staff and involvement in facility and personnel issues. Judge Thomas Clark will assume the position of acting chief judge. Dr. Rupali Das will be retiring from state service in January 2016. She was appointed as DWC Executive Medical Director in 2012. Following retirement, she will be joining Zenith Insurance Company as its Senior Vice President and California Medical Director. Immediately following her retirement, Associate Medical Director Dr. Raymond Meister will assume interim responsibilities while DWC conducts an active search for an Executive Medical Director. And in medical news, total knee replacement can usually relieve pain and improve function, but a new study claims that non-surgical regimens can also be effective in some people without posing the complication risks that can plague people who choose surgery. The study found that 85% of patients who underwent surgery showed clinically significant improvement after one year, but so did 67% assigned to a combination of supervised exercise, use of insoles, pain medication, education, and dietary advice. There's little debate that knee replacement helps many people, and the first randomized control trial ever done on the technique confirms it. Surgery patients registered far less pain and disability than those assigned to the non-surgery group. Yet, the study was needed because as many as 1% of surgery patients die within 90 days of their operation, and about 1 in 5 have residual pain at least 6 months after the procedure. Until now, doctors lacked 
rigorously controlled comparisons between total knee replacement and its alternatives. Knee replacement is a big surgical procedure and there are risks, but for patients with significant symptoms and evidence of arthritis, total knee replacement is a very effective way of improving the quality of life. Yet therapy alone has a role. It does help certain patients. It can prolong the time to when knee replacement becomes necessary. More than 670,000 total knee replacements are done in the United States each year at a cost of $36.1 billion. Another recent study indicates that more than two-thirds of people who have been prescribed antidepressants are likely not depressed at all. A report published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry says that 69% of those taking SSRIs, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as Prozac, do not display the classical symptoms of major depressive disorder. SSRIs are also prescribed for other mental disorders, including generalized anxiety disorder, social phobia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and panic disorder. But the researchers found that 38% of those taking the drugs did not meet the criteria for these other conditions either commonly considered to have fewer side effects than other antidepressants, SSRIs are the most prescribed class of drugs for treating depression and other psychiatric disorders. The authors of the study say that many individuals who are prescribed and use antidepressant medications may not have met criteria for mental disorders. They claim the data shows that antidepressants are commonly used in the absence of clear evidence-based indications. Between 1988 and 2008, the use of antidepressants increased almost 400%, with 11% of Americans now regularly taking these drugs. The official U.S. guidelines for diagnosing clinical depression are... When a person has five or more depressive symptoms over a two-week period, most of the day, nearly every day. Symptoms of clinical depression range from a depressed mood to thoughts of suicide. They might also include a lack of interest in normal activities, changes in weight or appetite, insomnia, or too much sleep, restlessness, fatigue, guilty feelings, and problems with concentration or decision-making. Although SSRIs are considered to be safer than other antidepressants, they are not without potentially serious side effects. Studies have shown that the use of antidepressants involves an increased risk of suicidal behavior and thoughts in children and adolescents, particularly in the early stages of treatment. The use of Prozac and Sesozat actually doubles the risk of suicidal behavior among young people. Studies have also indicated an increased risk of children being born with autism when their mothers take SSRIs during pregnancy. Considering the risks, these drugs should never be casually prescribed. 
And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.